Lingard is joining in, and he's seen Martinelli! Extraordinary! Set it for Saliba! For Kyle Saka, beaten out by the roof, and touched in by Jesus! Kyle Saka! Hello and welcome back to the Bruised Banana FC podcast where today we've got a lot to talk about. It feels like a lot changes in the space of less than seven days for Arsenal Football Club. So we're going to be going through it all. And with the use of the Bruised Banana FC random superlative ejective generator, I can tell you that I am the chewiest Luke. Not quite sure how to react to that one. And I'm also joined by the stingiest Ben. How's uh, how's the week been for you, Ben? Yeah, I mean, before uh, before last night, I think I would have been pretty stingy on the on the praise. But um, last night, I think turned it around. It was quite. It felt strange um, watching us last night. It felt because at one nil, you're never confident, but also Sevilla didn't have a shot on target until the ninety fourth minute. So it was sort of like a you you wonder how you, your team can possibly screw this up because we've been in, we've been in that position so many times. You know, where one nil or two nil, and out of nowhere, bam, you. You know your back level, or your uh, only slightly, slightly uh, like one go ahead, but it felt comfortable last night. So maybe I'll be slightly less stingy on the praise today. We'll see. Yeah, I think it's it's been a good good game to reverse the the mood a little bit because it, it's strange because the last time we were talking about we were speaking about a really good win against Sheffield United, which then turned into a really disappointing loss against West Ham, and now we're talking about a really disappointing loss against Newcastle, which has turned into a really, um, a really kind of uplifting uh, Champions League match against Sevilla, which is, I, I mean, I don't really want to say it, but you know, it all but sealed uh, qualification from the group, which is obviously a, a really good um, achievement for our first season back in the Champions League. But we are going to go back in time a little bit to that Newcastle game. Unfortunately, I know that <laughs> I didn't even repressed it, but the, the thing with it is, is we're not really just talking about the Newcastle game, are we? We're talking about almost... The, the prism of reaction that has that has come from that game because it's not just the fact that we have to question our performance in this game, which of course we do. It's also that there's been a lot to come out of the game. Obviously, Arteta's reaction has been followed by a lot of reaction around that on what is right. Like obviously, the club have put something out. So, firstly, we're like let's just come back to the game a little bit. Obviously, this is a game that we're missing Odegaard for. When we spoke about it on the last pod, we weren't quite sure what eleven we wanted to see. And I think that in the game itself, we, we looked a bit toothless. We didn't really create much. And there were probably situations that Newcastle, although they weren't amazing either, they probably could have done better with. But so the first thing I kind of come to with Ben is when you're watching this game, let's say like leading up to the, the Anthony Gordon goal. So at this point, it's still nil-nil. Like how, how did you feel this game was going? Um, sort of about as I expected in the Newcastle were very hard to break down and we were lacking something of a cutting edge. Um, I wasn't expecting us to lack quite so much of a cutting edge and I wasn't expecting the officials to take centre stage from sort of midway through the first half, but I didn't expect it to be a high scoring game. I expected a professional performance, which for the most part I think we got. And I expected it to be a close game that we'd probably come out on the right side of if we executed well, which um, I think it's probably still the case, but obviously we didn't execute well. I don't think we did enough to win the game. I don't think we did enough to lose the game either. Um, obviously decided by some questionable officiating throughout the game, and you can group Havertz in that if you really want to. But obviously the Bruno one, uh, the Anthony Gordon goal. There's a lot of stuff that makes you like in when you're playing across such fine margins, which you know. We can talk about how we shouldn't have been playing across such fine margins anyway, but that's the reality of elite sport. Um, it's really annoying when they get settled that way, especially when it's so contentious and especially when you can point to other things earlier in the game and sort of say, well, what's gone on here then? So I think I, I wasn't I wasn't surprised that the, go, the game was so close and that the result was so close. I was annoyed at the way that we lost, but like... Losing our way to Newcastle, I think a lot of teams are going to do it. It's just, as I say, frustrating that we lost in the way we did because we didn't really deserve to lose. Yeah, I agree with that, to be honest. And I think it was it was quite a frustrating game to watch, wasn't it? Because, as you say, we didn't really create much. 
if anything at all, really. And it's almost a shame that we can be talking about such like a, like a five nil win in like in the last game in the league, where obviously five um, uh, goals like first goals Tomiyasu, Eddie scores a hat trick, like um, uh, Fabio Verde does really well to win the penalty, and then from then we haven't like it hasn't been a springboard for us to create more chances. And obviously, as also you said. Newcastle way is always going to be cagey. Like, you're not, like teams don't go there and win two, three, nil. It's it's not how it works. You do have to dig in at points. You have to stay in the game. You do have to stand up to the physical battle of it. But at the same time, you have to also, when you're a team that's competing for the league, you have to have the quality to create chances. And we just didn't have that quality on the night. And big part down to the fact we're missing Martin Odegaard. I think like it, it feels to me at times that any midfield without a minute feels a little bit unbalanced. Um, I think that Jorginho coming in alleviates that a little bit in ways just because he you know, has that brain and like his pass for Saki that it will touch a bit more and when we come to Sevilla, it's unbelievable. Um, but yeah, so I mean, let's, let's come to these references. I, I want to be as unbiased as I can when, when I do this, even though I'm probably going to come across as biased. So, like, you know, we go to the first instant because I always say that the some a lot of these games they hinge on whether or not the first big decision is right. So obviously Havertz goes in quite hard. Um, on is, is it Dan Burn? Uh, he goes in possibly. Yeah, so he goes in. He goes in flying. Admittedly, he's off the ground. He's not really in control of that challenge. Um, from that perspective, I I'm happy to concede that if he's given a red card, I'm not going to overly complain. But I will also kind of put into there that I don't actually think it's a red card. And the reason I don't think it's a red card is because um, uh, obviously, and, and some people disagree with this, but there's no angle that I've seen that makes me feel like there is actually contact of the lead foot. And um, and all the contact for me is with the the training leg. And that's not to say that that doesn't a bad foul. It's a, it's a pretty shocking challenge in itself. I think it's quite uh, careless and, and you could maybe say reckless, but I don't think that you could at any point say that that foul is is going to, you know, injure someone or cause danger to someone because the the whole impact and the whole probably the, one of the big reasons why it was kind of blown up the way it was is because of the reaction of the player that was affected by the training leg. So, like, do you agree with that, Ben? What, what were your thoughts on the challenge? Yeah, I think it's a sort of orange, but I I, I agree with you. I think if there was contact with the if it had been you know it's two footed, it sort of jumped into it's off the ground, it's reckless, yes. But there's no contact with the front legs. So to me, it's one of those where it's like yellow bordering on red. But I don't think there's enough just... I don't think you can give a red there. Um, I just... Yeah, I, I think that by the laws of the game, it's a yellow card. Um, personally, as I say, I don't think... As, or as you said, rather, I don't think that we'd be overly surprised if it was a red card. I don't think VAR would overturn it if it was a red card. Uh, not mm-hmm. least because they do the, you know, stop it at the the worst possible freeze frame, and show it all <laughs> yeah. in slow motion, and you know, we've seen we've seen how they do it. Um, but I think that a yellow card is okay. Like I know it's come out today that it was sort of unanimous that Havertz should have been sent off. But I, I don't, I don't think that I think if he makes contact with that first foot, then yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. But because he doesn't, I don't think you can give a red because it's not. You know, it doesn't meet all the criteria. Yeah, I, I don't know, I, that, that's, I that. that's my that's my interpretation of it, and I've said that the whole time. You know, I don't think we could complain if he got sent off. Mm-hmm. But then again, if he'd been sent off, let's you know, Gary Neville will be on commentary saying about how naive Arsenal had been to get a player sent off, exactly, um, and we would have lost four one, and you know, everything in the media would be about how we're <laughs> we're we'll uh, have a whole team on the halfway line. It'd be it'd be yeah, pretty exactly. Brave. You, you, you know how it goes, mate. You know, we get yeah. we'll get the oh Arsenal are stupid, we're soft. Um, the same narratives that we've always had. Can they really do it um, against a big, powerful, physical team uh, that bend the rules in every possible way to try and fit their own uh, success? So it's 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 going to feed into whatever narrative you want to believe or whatever narrative gets spun by the media. But looking at the challenge in isolation, I'd say it was a yellow card, or as I say, bordering on a red. Um, but if it's given as a yellow on the pitch, I'm happy for it to be a yellow on the pitch. Yeah, I, I I agree completely with that, and I think like a good almost litmus test for for this type of thing, I think, is that as you say, like 
if it was to go, let's say, to the monitor and they were to kind of freeze frame it, you see a lot in these challenges, they freeze frame it on the point of contact and it makes it look a lot worse. But if you were to freeze frame that on the point of contact, then you're just freeze framing it on a train and leg taking someone out. So I think that yep. you have to kind of take that kind of thing in consideration when you look at these challenges. Because obviously we don't want to see loads of red cards given but there are some points where like acts of aggression and we can point to a lot of those especially over the last week alone where you do want that and and there's been a lot of challenges from arsenal players that have gone off where i've said okay no fair enough but I, like for me that's not a red but then we come on and you mentioned that there is like an, an independent key match instance panel that supposedly um i say supposedly they they voted that they thought that was a red unanimously and they also thought uh, Bruno, who is it, Gimarish? I think that's how you say yeah. his name, that his forearm to the back of um, Jorginho's head was a red card, but it was a lot closer of a vote. And that in itself just makes me feel <laughs> like I kind of lose all respect for, for that panel in that case, because like if, if, they were, if, if they were both completely unanimous, then I can say, okay, fair enough. But the fact that they think one is like Havertz is more of a red card than that to me is ridiculous. And also I want to bring forward Demi Carragher's reaction to it, where I'll just read it out. He's put out a tweet, which is about four hours ago now, but he just said in reaction to um, Gimaraj um, uh, and Havertz's um, uh, challenges um, being told of red, he's saying those challenges were strong yellows, not reds. Havertz's challenge is stupid, but there is little contact. Gimaraj, again, stupid, but it's not an elbow. And I don't understand. So what? The, what, is the, <laughs> what is the framework of that argument that it has to be an elbow? And I've seen this kind of wording thrown out a few times since Monday. Why, does it, why, why can a forearm that's premeditatively whacked in the back of someone's head as they're running past them with no attempt to win the ball He's doing it just just to hurt him. Yeah, of course. In, in in what way does that have to be an elbow to to be you know the line of what constitutes a yellow and a red? It, I don't understand. What is the framework of this argument to me? Yeah, just I think that uh, it's it's a similar. I think Carragher might have said it before as well. He sort of said, "Oh, we don't want to see um, referees just like it's been said for a long time. We don't want to see referees deciding games. You don't want red cards to break up eleven v eleven games." And I always think, I always think, like that's not on the ref, that's on the player. Like mm-hmm. you can't referee a game as if you want to keep it eleven v eleven. That's not how it works. Like you have to referee the game as if, you know, if it's dangerous play, it's dangerous play. It's not dangerous play. Oh, but it's a big game, and we don't want to ruin the spectacle for Sky or for whoever's broadcasting it. Like that's not how that game works. That's then you go, oh. Maybe you should keep better control of your players. Like that's exactly. not a that's not an excuse to say we want, um, you know, we we want to keep the game fair and close. And because if 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 they had gone down to ten men, if either side had gone down to ten men, yes, it's an advantage. But you know, as, sh- as Spurs showed for a whole twenty minutes um, <laughs> in on Monday, that it's not um, it's not critical. Like you can still survive. And it just it just makes it a fairer game because these decisions get punished. And then you know for a fact that someone's going to have a forearm this weekend or next weekend in a game that is of far less consequence. Maybe it'll be a non-televised 3pm game and it'll be, I don't know, Burnley-Aston Villa to pick two teams up off the top of my head. And then it'll be a red card. And everyone will say, oh, well, what stupid challenge, you know, can't be going around doing that. And that's <laughs> where the problem lies because there'll be zero consistency. And the same people that have said, oh, it's a yellow card, it's never a red, for something very similar in a couple of weeks, we're saying, oh, but this was a red card, he can't be doing that, you know, we need to be more careful, blah, yada, yada, yada. And it's just, I think that's where it really frustrates people. It's not whether or not it's a red card, which, you know, I think the vast majority would say, yes, it's a red card. It's the fact that in two weeks' time, that will be a red card. In four weeks' time, it won't be a red card. You know, there's no consistency with decisions. And because there's no transparency about the audio, or how the decision is reached, and all you get then is people trying to justify the decisions on TV or radio days later. You know, you'll have Dermot Gallagher coming on and saying something. You'll have Keith Hackett coming on and saying something. You'll have the pundits saying another thing. It just means that it gets so distorted, and in, because there's no inconsistency, it just frustrates fans more than I think if they'd given no decision 
and we could go back and say, oh, well, that was, you know, historically this hasn't been a red card, so this one wasn't a red card either. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, I just exactly think that. It's so frustrating because you will see that given um, as a red card against someone else, and you'll be like, well, why? <laughs> like, there's no difference. The only difference is the occasion and, you know, the people on VAR. And, like, I understand that, like, in some games, right, the the ceiling of, of certain decisions kind of... Like, obviously, the, the referee's there to manage the game. So there'll be little calls. I think little calls get affected by by how the game goes, right? Like, I think sometimes if the game's getting too physical, then sometimes you do maybe have to call a free kick where there maybe wasn't as much for free kick, just so you can kind of stop the game, kind of talk to people and say, look, it's getting about control, blah, 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 blah. I think there, there are situations where that's fair, but I don't think that counts for situations that could genuinely change the game and especially not situations where you're talking about red cards and stuff and to, to me it's just crazy because especially my mind instantly goes to when we played Burnley not last season but the season before and Xhaka you know has one of his hothead moments and he doesn't choke someone but he puts his hand on their throat and he gets sent off for that instantly gets sent off for that yeah and as far as I could see, I mean, there, there'll always be a few, but no Arsenal fans that I knew disputed that red card. It was always, our narrative was always, Xhaka, you've done something really stupid. And Which it I just feels to me. By. Exactly, yes, yeah, the same. Yeah, exactly. But it, it, you, then you come back to this challenge and you're thinking like, it's, it's similar in, in the sense that this is these are physical acts against a player that have happened where the ball is not anywhere near the play. There is no intention to play the ball from these acts. Xhaka has done it because he's lost his head. And even though he hasn't caused actual kind of like pain to to someone, there's the potential for him to do that. Whereas if I'd, I'd argue the Gimaraj one is far, far worse because the ball's gone. He's lost his head. He's absolutely out of control. And well, he's I literally, his, his, his prime objective in that act is to hurt Jorginho. That's all he's doing. Yeah, I think that's that's the worst bit for it. I think they showed it on, I'm pretty sure they showed it on Sky at the time. It was like, he misses that challenge and then he's running back and just thinks, well, I'll have a go now. Love, like, He's lost his head. Mm. Um, and like, it's just one of those where context matters. And like, it's not, it's it may not be an elbow, but Frank, frankly, who cares if it's an elbow or not? Like a forearm does just as much damage. Um, yeah, literally. He's running people, past. People knock he's... people out with forearms in MMA. Well, he's he's running past and you just whacked him for no reason. The ball's gone. The ball's off the screen, and it's sort of like, how do you get away? It's one of those where I think that if the ref had given a yellow, the VAR would have recommended him to upgrade it. Like I genuinely believe that if the ref had seen it and given a yellow card, the VAR would have gone, "Oh, well, I think you've made a mistake there." But I think that because the ref didn't see it, it's easier to for VAR to be like, "Oh yeah, check and fix." It's fine. Is mad in a lot of these challenges. I think that where is the plausible deniability for the player? Like in the sense of Havertz, it's it's a full blooded challenge. It's a it's a reckless challenge. He shouldn't have done it. But you can say he's going for the ball. He's run there and he's made a challenge for the ball. And and it's overzealous and he deserves a yellow card. As you said before, it's kind of like or kind of orange card. But at the end of the day, you can't dispute that his primary focus is to go for the ball, but there's no plausible deniability for Bruno Gamaraj there because as, as you say, the ball's gone. He's just clocked someone. Yeah. In, in, just, in what planet, enough. in what planet is that not a red card? It's mental to me. Um, and probably more mental than the next one we're going to come on. And I just want to just kind of get these out of the way just so we can, um, uh, because it's, it's quite therapeutic this to me. I, I can't lie to you. <laughs> I'm quite in, well, almost enjoying you, you this. You had it bottled up. I, I deliberately avoided this podcast. I was like, oh, you know what? I can't. I don't think I can bring myself to do it. And now it's like, oh, back it's all again. coming out. So we're coming on to the goal now, and obviously, there's kind of like three different talking points of the goal. And like, I'll, I'll give you my opinion on kind of like the run through of, of what I was thinking. And I was thinking the same thing, right? Um, even while they were checking. And the first one I thought was the ball going out. To me, it's not out enough that you can definitively say it's out. So I'm all right with that. I don't think it's any more out than the Brighton or than the Manchester United goal against Brighton that was cancelled out. But I'm like I am aware that from the angle we see, it looks out, but obviously there's a curvature of the ball. If if I'm in the VAR that in that in that point, I could potentially think I, I think I would think I'm not hundred percent certain that's out, so I can't call that as out. So fair enough. Right. 
the big one for me is the push on Gabriel and and another and the reaction from Carragher and Neville from this to me is just crazy from two people that have played the game as well right to say that Gabriel should be stronger he's 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 in front of Jolinton he's in position to get the ball he's lent over to meet the path of the ball and he's got two hands um from I mean how big is Jolinton 6-1 6-2. There's a there's a big attacker that has jumped in the air with his hands not only on the back, but also on the back of his head. There is no player in world football that doesn't get affected by that. Why has Gabriel missed the ball? Because he's been pushed down from someone jumping up with arms on his back. I, I, I can't imagine a more clear foul in that situation. It's so easy to me. It's two plus two. It's just, you see that and you say, okay, well, that's a foul. Dead sir, it's a foul. Like, what do you think? What do you think? You tell me. Am I wrong? Um, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I think it's. It sh- I think it should be given on the pitch, and I think the problem we have is that VAR don't want to overturn that because it's a, you know, it's a vital moment, and they don't want to go against the referee. Quite frankly, um, let's like, let's not forget they're all they're all pals as well. So it's like, oh, you know, I don't want to go against my mate because. He might be upset with me and this, that, and the other. I'm pretty sure there <laughs> was literally about a, a golf club. I promise you, they were talking yeah. about a golf club. Howard, I think Howard Webb came on the show the other day, and he was like, "Oh well, he, um, someone hasn't given it because he didn't." And Anthony Taylor was having a tough game, and he didn't want to make it worse or something. And you're like, "That is oh, that was Mike Dean, wasn't it? Was it Mike? Yeah. Oh, I can't remember." But it was the most feeble excuse you've ever heard. Like, can you imagine? Like, when when we're talking millions of pounds for every single point. That is genuinely criminal. Um, yeah. That you don't want to make someone's day worse by telling them they've made a mistake. Um, for the, the point. For the... <laughs> it's the point. It's why it's here. It's. I, I I sort of can understand why they've given the goal. Also, I mean, I think it's a cl- pretty clear foul. Um, I can understand. I completely agree about the ball going out. I I don't know if the ball's gone out. I don't think any of us know if the ball's gone out. Um. But the fact to me, the foul is like—I just think that it's pretty clear. Um, and you know, I don't want to be that that guy to just bang on about narratives. But we—I think a lot of people forget that Sky can hear what they're saying. So, like when mm. Gary Neville's saying, "Oh, it's soft," I wouldn't give that. It's almost premeditative of what's going to happen. Like in that sense. And then, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists, but I, I genuinely do think one that holds water is that Sky have a decent um, grasp, or rather they are, they're, they're not in lockstep, but they're in close uh, quarters with, with PGMOL, and it's like a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, if it, like, I wasn't too, I, I assumed it was going to be a foul. Like, two hands in the back, going over the top of him anywhere else on the pitch that's a foul mm-hmm. um, and I was I was shocked it wasn't given for a start and then I was shocked that the VAR didn't change it but then you see them, like I think there was one that Napoli had yesterday or the day before that was given as a foul with a goal ruled out and you're just like this is the exact problem, maybe in the Champions League but there's no consistency across officiating and it's like the the incompetence is genuinely staggering and that, that's that, I think that's what annoys me more than any sort of like conspiracy theories about oh refs are anti this team anti that team whatever they've been told to do this that and the other it's just they're so so incompetent and they're backed up by their equally incompetent mates who have only had the technology four years and sometimes forget to draw the lines like <laughs> what do we expect is going to happen and um, I think it was Keith Hackett said on Twitter that to kind of echo what echo what you were saying like about um, uh, there being some sort of I don't know, partnership between PJ Muell and, and other people. Like Keith Hackett said on Twitter, ex-referee, um, that he was told of two people that were contacted with instructions to, in his words, toe the line and um and help kind of curb the uh the criticism of, of PJ Muell. Not saying that is Neville and Carragher. It could be, maybe not. Also, Richard Keyes, that a very unlikely Gandalf to come over the hill at Helmsteep, even he said <laughs> That um, <laughs> even he said that he was he received some word from them as for him to almost change the narrative on, on what's speaking of. So you know, at this point, we're losing punditry. 
aren't we? Because it, it's it's coming away from punditry and it's becoming damage limitation, and that's not what we pay money for. And I, I'm, my mind's reaction is: if any of these people that have received word from PGMOL to alter their opinions to suit PGMOL, um, then if it ever comes proven that people have done this, then they should be exodus from their um, their stations because at the end of the day, and I know the stations are complicit as well, but at the end of the day, when we don't pay money, I, I don't pay loads of money for these things to um, to hear damage limitation. I, I, I want to hear educated, honest opinions that I may not always agree with, but at least they're honest. And, you know, I think that it really crosses the line. That we've it, happens, seen that it happens now. with everything. I mean, you look at... Um, if, if United start losing, Gary Neal bangs on about the Glazers. Spurs lost 4-1. Somehow they spent two days being the media darlings because somehow like losing 4-1, going going down to nine men is applauded and losing 4-1 whilst being down to nine men is acceptable because you played a high line and not conceded three goals. Maybe like, they were the I real winner. I saw a paper said that. Yeah, that was the athletic, I don't know which one. Yeah. Was it the, the athletic? And they're good, sure was, yeah. usually. But it was just... I couldn't believe it genuinely like it's a case where i'm just sort of you sat there scratching your head and you're like if you took that in isolation and the media you didn't know anything about the media or like anything any reaction you would say spurs have lost spurs lost two men in the first hour of that game Mm -hmm. and then tried to play a stupidly high line against their biggest rivals now managed by their last successful manager and lost 4-1 in what world could that be considered i was saying like if Liverpool do it, if City do it, if United do it, if Arsenal do it, even if Chelsea do it, you know, everyone's banging on about how they were, how it was suicide or how they were so naive and so stupid. You know, we've seen the narratives before. Xhaka loses his head and all of a sudden, like, Arsenal are stupid and he's cost his team and blah, blah, yada, yada, yada. And it's just like, every time there's different, like, media narratives and it just makes no sense to me. And it's dumb. Like, I don't care what anyone says. Objectively, it is dumb to line all your players on the halfway line <laughs> and have them there when you can get no pressure on the ball. And if Chelsea were an actually all right football team, and I say that realizing the, the partial irony of the fact that we drew with them the other week, if they if they had anything about them, if they had any experience or composure about them, then that game's six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, and I yeah, I, I completely understand the idea of. This is our philosophy. We're going to play this way. Klopp's been like a big in that. Pep's big in that. Even Arteta is quite big in that to a certain extent, even though he's a bit, maybe a bit more malleable. But at the same time, there's 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 a middle ground here. <laughs> you don't have yeah. to like you don't have to fall on your swords. And they fell on their sword for the point of it. And yeah, they created some chances, but they gave away loads more chances. So it's like you don't have to sit in a deep block if you're down to nine men if you don't want to. You can be a bit more positive you can still press higher doesn't mean you can do what they did which i now say right and i I say this completely honestly is the worst defending i've ever seen in the premier league and i (laughs) i i i put the challenge to anyone anyone listening to this that can show me worse defending than that over the course of a team rather than individual then i'll give you a tenner i'll send it to you on paypal honestly i will because you're not going to find it it doesn't exist do you remember this is a bit niche, but do you remember Spurs played, I think it was Southampton back in the Hassenhuttle days? And I think they won like 5-1 or 5-0. Um, and Kane and Son ran riot. Basically, the whole media thing was, oh, why are Southampton playing this stupidly high line? Spurs are in bind every <laughs> single time. It's like, this is schoolboy defending. And it's literally like, all it took was, I think it was Mark Kukurea made a run from left back. And all it took was someone to realise, oh wait, if I run from further back and just run in behind, Eric Dyer's not catching me. Like they're playing makeshift <laughs> like Hoiberg's Eric not Dyer catching me. Line. Like yeah. what's like it was honestly, I know talking about Spurs I've made this about bit like talking about Spurs, but um it just it boiled my blood. And it boils my blood the way that the narratives are spun uh, after games. Like Mikel Arteta yeah. comes it's, out it's swinging for his team and all of a sudden it's like, oh, how dare you, like, you know, come out and defend your team and say what you really think. And all the time it's like, oh, we wish managers were, you know, weren't sitting on the fence so often and this, that and the other. It's, <laughs> everywhere you turn, it's just they're pick and choose. Yeah, yeah, they're pick and choose. And it is links. Like you say, like, now we're talking about Spurs. And obviously it's easy for us to kind of talk about a 4-1 Spurs loss as, you know, Arsenal fans. But at the same time, it is linked because these things aren't separate. Like, 
there have been two kind of like or like big matches in the space of of what like a day and um and and these two matches have been embroiled in not VR controversy in terms of this of the Spurs game but but a lot of VR, VR activity and I felt like the whole <laughs> the whole narrative afterwards of oh big Ange isn't complaining that Romero tried to commit GVH and got a red card what a great guy it just it doesn't make sense there's no problem like he's not disputing any schools because he can't dispute any of these calls like like whether you not you yeah. believe about believe Arteta or agree with him you can at least accept that he has stuff that he can rightly question there is no man in the world that like or no professional man in the world in football that can tell me Romero's um like thing isn't a red card and well, you yeah, can't tell Udobie, me no, no, he could have gone earlier as well exactly like, see that's it just it's just it's yeah dumb. it's very stupid and also you know you know for a fact that especially i mean i say especially because we have a history of like we had a history under our of going down to 10 men you know as soon as we go down to 10 men it will be a discipline issue for arsenal you know it'll be like oh they're so naive, you know, they're so brain dead, this, that, and the other. And Spurs go down to nine men and it's somehow applauded. Like they were forced down to nine men through some, <laughs> you know, heroic fall on their sword. Like, exactly. it, yeah. Yeah. But luckily, I guess. Oh, the, man, that was, that was therapeutic. <laughs> I feel like there's a the, weight off my shoulders now. Yeah. No, same, honestly. I think the, the bright side to it is, is while. James Madison is beefing with John Terry on Instagram. We can talk about an Arsenal Champions League game where we've gone to... Admittedly, you know, I'm under no illusions. Sevilla aren't having the best season. Um, they're 15th in the Liga at the moment. They're really struggling. Like, like um, I was looking at their results earlier. They, they're really struggling for wins. They've they got a, a draw against Real Madrid, but even, like other than that, you know, they're, they're looking really, really bad. Um, as you said, they didn't have a shot against us until the last minute. So... The one we want to say about this game is, is that as bad as they are in the league at this point in time, this is still a, a team that is very, very seasoned in European competition. So I still think that there is credit that needs to be given on us as a team, not only for going away to a place where they have such a strong European record that like they hardly ever lose um, at, at home in the in European competition, but also the fact that we're able to kind of get the job done there with like a good 60-ish minutes and then we had to dig in, fair enough. And then we bring them back to our place and what is a really, really controlled performance. And one of the the beneficiaries of this is probably Kai Havertz. So, you know, in in the absence of Martin Odegaard is maybe getting a little bit more responsibility in the team. I thought he was okay at best against Newcastle and I thought he was maybe slightly better against Sevilla. Um, Arteta said that he's very very happy with him like do you think this is kind of an improving thing for for Havertz do you see like something is starting to click I saw more confidence which I think is the most important thing maybe not like certainly not in the final third like especially early on I think that header is you know that's that's something that is unforgivable on you know if it's a big if it's an actual big game then that is that costs you the game and it's like well that's a major talking point. Luckily, it didn't. But I think he had signs that he was getting into better positions. I think he had a couple of shots from sort of the edge of the box. Um, one went just wide and one was blocked. But I think that those are the sort of positions we wanted to get him in. And it's nice to see him getting into those positions and having the confidence to have a shot. And it sounds stupid because this is a professional footballer we're talking about. But like it was kind of like that. And it is kind of a bit like nursing him back to health which you can sit we can sit and argue all day about whether or not that's what Arsenal should have done with 65 million pounds but you know that's what that's what Arteta decided to do and Arteta has a um I don't know what the word is he likes he likes having this opportunity to like nurse people back to health doesn't he um <laughs> the, the the Florence Nightingale of football <laughs> yeah like it is just I think I can see why I can see more and more why Mikel Arteta bought Kai Havertz. I can see why he's happy with Kai Havertz. I think his performances are improving, but he's ultimately going to be judged on his output, and that's not there yet. And that's a fair, perfectly fair criticism for someone who costs sixty-five million pounds. I think. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think that it's probably definitely the case that he looks a little more, bit more comfortable at this point coming off of the right. 
because he can cut in yeah. his left left foot. I think he looks like he has he's a bit more clued in on what he needs to do in those areas. So as much as obviously like hopefully Erdogan comes back as as quick as possible, but maybe one of the very few positives to, to Erdogan not being in the team is that it's giving giving Kai Havertz a bit more opportunity to be a bit more comfortable in the team where hopefully he'll build up a bit of form, a bit of confidence. And then if the, the time does come that Erdegaard comes back into team and Havertz has played one up to retain his place and then goes, he maybe goes to less that central midfield, then maybe he's then got the momentum to, to take on that side of the pitch and, and, and still try kicking on. But yeah, I mean, as I say, it, when you compare it to the performances like the Fulham one, and it's a low bar in those types of games, to be fair, against Fulham, because he was really poor there. But it does seem like step by step by step, there is something improving. But we have to we have to wait and see if it actually does improve. There's, but there's, you know, the two players, the two standouts to me on the night were Saka and Martinelli, who, and obviously, you know, the Champions League is the biggest platform in the world. It's it's the it's the stage of football, isn't it? Of of club football, anyway. So for players to go into the Champions League and prove how good they are is is you know it what is what sets people apart this is what stops the questions was i think that you've got a lot of these players that like like maybe Saka's a good example because he's been brilliant in the Premier League for a few seasons now but he hasn't played in those kind of big games and i think now that you're kind of seeing him in the Champions League midweek going up against you know PSV doing really well going up against Sevilla doing really well then that's what starts to make people actually listen and, and think, okay, this kid's actually the real deal. And Martinelli had a kind of a similar night last night where it, like, it just felt like he, <laughs> he had that entire team just on strings. He was almost um, having fun with them at points. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, I'm genuinely shocked Martinelli didn't get two-footed at some point. I think they tried. <laughs> I think at one point in the first half, you danced past about three players from the left wing into like central midfield. Um and I'm pretty sure one of them tried to two foot him and he danced around that as well. So I just, he was, he was different last night. That's. Uh, He's coming back, isn't he, Martinelli? You can feel the, yeah, but the, the motor's the starting to kind of the gears are going through now. Yeah, but the problem is, again, as I think is a fair criticism for most of his time on the wing, the end product isn't consistent. Mm-hmm. Like, he be, I think he beat his player seven or eight times last night. And I can't think of one cutback that found a teammate, like one cross that found a teammate in that sort of area where we were looking to find them. And granted, Sevilla played a very deep, uh, deep block where you know there were six or seven Sevilla players in the box at any one time, even if he got to the byline. But it felt like there was maybe a little bit of composure lacking at the end, which you know he's he's twenty two now, twenty one, twenty two, something like that. So I think there's. there's plenty of room for him to improve but it is just that final end product and once he just starts doing that consistently we will see him rightly in the conversations of you know best wingers or best left-sided players in the Premier League it's just finding that end product because last night he was unplayable like Wanlu will be having nightmares that that was the Callum Chambers Jefferson Montero (laughs) but we are on the right side of it this time yeah Uh, because one of the big things and as you say it's a fair criticism Martinelli is it's almost because he's so talented that you expect so much of him. And he gives off the impression of a player that could be a 30 goal a season player. Um, yeah. uh, and, and he could get, you know, like he could create a lot. He could, he could score a lot. And obviously last season he got, was it 14 or 15 goals in the Premier League, which is obviously a great return for someone of his age and experience. And the fact that I think that like, for, like Firmino's record um, as like the highest scoring Brazilian player in Premier League history, not counting apparently Diego Costa, because even though he's born in Brazil, he, represented Spain um but the fact that he's kind of up there with those kind of names kind of shows how talented he is um so it's always like it's fair for us to to expect a lot of him I think because you know admittedly he's he's come back from injury he's still kind of building back that fitness I think uh but yeah yeah I, I agree I think when when he's got those matches where he's consistently beating his man you've got to get your head up and and kind of find those passes and, and create those those chances and score the goals yeah it's just is it is just I think something that will come with time um, it is a bit frustrating because he does all that good work and then it's undone by the fact that you don't get anything out of it. But at the same time, it is really, really fun to watch. Like he get, <laughs> watching him get the ball last night was so much fun because you just knew what was going to happen. And the the, the right back was in a different postcode to him most of the time. 
Like he was in the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, and Martinelli had the freedom of the left flank at the Emirates. So it was on the like halfway a... line of the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just, it was good fun. That was I, I enjoyed that performance because although we weren't at our most ruthless best, there were really really fun bright sparks. I think William Saliba was immense again. I think Declan Rice was amazing. Um, you know, Tommy Asu, I'm sure we'll come on to, but it was just sort of like a Martinelli's show, I think, because he just that's the sort of get you get you off your seat kind of football that we maybe haven't seen enough of in the last decade of the Emirates. Yeah, completely agree. And Tommy Asu is a really good person to come on to because I think that in, in this current look of Arsenal where, you know, Erdegaard's got injured, um and at the moment as you saw last night, you know, Jorginho playing with Declan Rice to the left of him, Havertz to the right, and then having Tommy Asu as that that left Back that kind of drops into the area it, it balances us out a bit kind of physically where you know Jorginho can be the brain he can pick the locks and he can control all the all the passing and everything like that but um, at the same time he's not getting overrun as much because obviously when you've got Martinelli on the left wing and if Rice is going to play left central midfield and he has to kind of push up into that that Xhaka-ish Havertz-ish kind of attacking midfield area which means at points he needs to leave Virginia alone so he needs to have someone in my opinion that can kind of slot in next to him and whilst Zinchenko is obviously a much better technical fulcrum in a way um, I think that the physicality that that Tommy has is really good so it's really disappointing to see him come off with an injury Um, uh, and you know with Tierney gone and Timber still out in January, do you think we need to strengthen an area? Like, uh, can we rely on Tommy and, and Zinchenko probably because both of them have their spells out? Can we rely on them to get us through the rest of the season? Do you think? I think I think a fullback's probably one of the most important things for us to sign this January. Like, I don't expect a lot of business. Um, like, a striker would be really really nice, but getting a striker in January is asking to be bent over uh, price wise. So mm. I think like a fullback would be good, um, obviously, but I think it is just a case of, especially with Tommy Asu going to the Asia games, um, like it will be, you know, with party going to AFCON, party, party field in right back to the start of the season um, and party's legs made of cheese strings. It is just a case <laughs> of like, we need a body in there because at the yeah. moment Cedric's making the match day squad and we're not far away from seeing him play. <laughs> <laughs> like we've got Ben White, Tommy Asu, Zinchenko, Kivio can play left back. Party's out injured. Timber's out injured. If Tommy Asu's out injured, or Tommy Asu's away, and Zinchenko or White get injured, we're suddenly looking at you know Kivio on the left, Cedric on the right. Um, unless I'm missing someone very obvious. So I, I think a fullback that ideally that can play on either flank, but I do think that the right is pro- it's hard to say actually because. Although on the right side you've got Cedric, on the left side you've sort of got no one unless you play Kivio there. Um, so ideally we need a fullback that can do both sides. And we signed that with Timber, but obviously he's out injured mm. for the season or until maybe like March. I don't know. I don't know what the latest on his recovery is, but it's... I've seen a lot of conflicting reports, to be fair. A lot of people think he's well ahead of um, of the timeline. I've not seen anyone official say that, though. Um, and my, my cut instinct would be I don't think that the club are going to rush him back I don't think we'll see him for a while No, I mean he's only, he's only 22 so it's a case of like you don't want to damage him now for the sake of or rush him back now for the sake of cutting his career short in five years time or giving him another injury you know. Mm-hmm. so I do exactly. think it's going to be a wait and see um, and hopefully he comes back as as good the player, as the player that we seem to have before he got injured because you know he was the shining light of the summer transfer window in terms of transfer business, because few players, few people knew what we were going to get. Like with Rice, you knew what you were going to get with paying top dollar. But Timber was one of those where we signed him and it came out of nowhere. And then people were like, oh my God, he's actually so good in this position that we need. So that's excellent. Um, but obviously then he got injured after about two games. So I think a fullback is important. I think we, we see how much Mikel Arteta has spent on defenders and how much he values building up from the back. So I think that he will also see the fullback as the most important, especially with Havertz as sort of that link player that hopefully, we, we hope, is going to grow into the role. And Emil Smith-Rowe coming back, 
I just think that defensively we'll need just a bit of cover. Just one, like one body probably. Um, mm-hmm. Either that or we see Cedric play and he could come back and be like, you know, he could have gone from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White. He could be incredible, but <laughs> who knows? He's been in a hyperbolic time chamber. Not a lot of people get the reference, but it's fine. Um, but no, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed, Tommy is just on the bench on Saturday because, you know, obviously we don't really know what the, the length of the, of the injury is. But, you know, if he can stay injury free from now and get through the Christmas periods, then, you know, give us some good options on maybe we, we can rely on his fitness. But I, I do think I agree with you. And I think that it's something we're going to have to look at in January because um, the fact that we're entering Cedric zone or the fact that we're even in the, like the fact he's even on the bench to me kind of screams out that we need a body, but it is what it is, but we can move on now to Saturday's game uh, game. I think I'm right in saying before another international break. How many national breaks have there been this season? Is this the third one? Yeah, there was a September one, an October one, and a November one. But then I think we're done until March, if this my memory serves me. I can't, I can't um, ever remember there being more national breaks than I've seen over the last few months. There's, this I think, is normal. I'm pretty sure there's, this is normal, but last season was different wow. because of the World Cup. Oh, uh, yeah, um, maybe. I think we've always had three international breaks, and I think we've always hated them. And I think <laughs> it's it usually goes about like this. Like the September one you deal with, the October one is so long that everybody loses their mind. And then you have about two weeks of football and they go away again. You're like, oh my God, not again, surely. Like, it's a bit of a nightmare. Really. Like, it just, it does, it disrupts any sort of flow you get as well. Yeah. I think that, that's the bigger thing, which is lucky because we don't have much flow at the moment. So um, maybe it's a good time to not have any and then sort of kick on in the second half of the season when the international breaks are over after March. Yeah, I mean, it could be, to be fair. I mean, obviously we need to get some players back from fitness as well, but I guess... Uh it's very important now that it feels like we have an opportunity because I think a lot of our fixtures, to be fair, have been not hard fixtures, but I think we haven't had as many of the really easy ones as we'd liked. Obviously we had the Sheffield United game that we won five nil, but other than that, it feels like, you know, we've, we've already played Man City once we've played Spurs once we've played Manchester United once we've played Chelsea once we've played Newcastle once. So these like a lot of them are tough games. So now we've got what should be, and I say should be hopefully more than expectedly. Um, a dead rubber game. It should be high scoring. It, we should leave this game as happy we, we left the the Sheffield United game going into an international break um, uh, with a lot of goals behind us and and a win behind us as well. And you know we're going up against a Burnley team who, at this point in time, don't look equipped for Premier League. I think that they haven't become streetwise enough to know how they need to play in the Premier League, and it's similar to a lot of teams and and. I really like coming back to this kind of anecdote of um, what's, what's his name? Let me get his name quickly. It's the former Norwich manager that is now managing Leeds. Um, uh, Daniel Farker. Daniel Farker, yes. So he had a really good quote um, where he said that when a team's come up from the championship, defensive teams tend to do better in the first season up because they don't have to change as much of their playing style um, and and, you know, become more defensive I guess it's more simpler and teams that have to that like to attack usually do worse in the first season because um, uh, obviously they can't be as dominant as they can be in the championship um, uh, but then after then it starts to switch once you've kind of adapted to the Premier League the teams that attack more tends to get a bit better like I guess Sheffield United a lot a few seasons ago a probably good example where they played quite like a, a defensive style they did really well then the season after that they nearly went down Oh, they did go down, sorry, like one of the worst teams in Premier League history. So I think that Burnley have come up playing a very dominant style and they've started the, the, the they started the Premier League thinking, we're gonna retain a lot of this style. And I think there's there's a merit to that. It's it's the Postacoglu thing, isn't it? It's like well, this is our principle, we're gonna play this way. But I do think that since then Burnley have looked completely out of sea. Like they've been done over by everyone, they've lost their last five games. The last win came against Luton. Um, and since then, they lost four one to Chelsea. Who could barely buy a goal against most teams um, in that kind of like part of the table? They lost three nil to Brentford. They lost two one to Bournemouth. They lost three nil to Everton in the cup, and then they just lost two nil to Crystal Palace. So this is a team that is struggling to score goals and is shipping a lot of goals. So coming to you, Ben, should this be a simple game? Is this going to be a happy day for us? Yes, and hopefully, um, are, the, are the two easy answers because. 
It might, it might. I mean, it might not be simple, but there should be plenty of space for us to attack into at least. But I don't think Burnley are going to come and offer a low block. Um, I think you know, as long as we are able to progress the ball well enough through the middle, then we we should be fine. Like I think I I, I do I, I do admire what Vincent Company is trying to do. It is as naive as it is admirable, though. Um, <laughs> you know, he doesn't. I don't think that Burnley were ever going to attract the sort of players to play that sort of style at the level required to play in the Premier League. Um, and they're certainly not going to pick... Like, They're not going to... It's kind of like Leeds. Do you remember when Leeds came up um, mm-hmm. under Bielsa and lost yeah. it, like high-scoring games against big teams? And then couldn't... like. Then later on, they couldn't beat small teams either. I think the first season, they were pretty good, if I remember correctly. But then the like, second and third season, they struggled to beat smaller teams because... They tried to play attractive football and these small teams are basically Sean Dyche's Burnley. Um, so I, I think Burnley have a similar problem. Well, companies Burnley, but they also can't beat the bigger teams because they're le- the level of pretty football they play isn't the same level. Uh, maybe, maybe just because they can't afford the likes of Declan Rice. You know, they haven't attracted the likes of Declan Rice. Um, but it is one of those things where you just hope that... I mean, you, you expect... Arsenal to have enough against that sort of team. Are they they're still in the relegation zone, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're um, second to bottom. Uh, second to bottom. They they join like with Sheffield United on four points, but they've got a slightly better goal difference. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it'll be five nil, but I could see it being like three nil, three one, something like that. Um, pretty comfortably. Mm, yeah, I mean it's it's, it's got to be. I think it's got to be convincing because and probably the. The thing that I'd be frustrated with if I was a Burnley fan, as much as, you know, I, I like to think I'm a bit of a purist of football, like, obviously, you know, we grew up with Wenger. So in terms of we play our principled way of football, you know, we've lived through that. Like, like the only manager I really remember for Arsenal is Wenger, and he was always like that. So that has been my entire experience as a fandom up until mm-hmm. Unai Emery <laughs> and his... Uh... <laughs> and his let's, uh, you know, let's play around. Unai Emery had his principles positions. too. Yeah, no, to be fair, he did, but um, but he he was happy to change. Like he was such like a, a weirdly different manager from Wenger anywhere. Like, um, he didn't care if we won. Pretty, he'd put anyone no. anywhere. Do you know what I mean? Like he'd, yeah, well, he'd his, do anything his, for that. Win. His principles were always make at least one change at half time. Um, <laughs> start someone in a position where we've never seen them play before, and then persist to play them there when they're woefully out of position. Looking at you, Lucas Torreira, um, <laughs> and it was. It it was sort of like expansive football. I'd to go on to another another tangent, and I we probably everyone everyone who is listening, if there's anyone still listening, is probably bored of our tangents already. But the pray we didn't play like he does at Villa at the moment. Like the, I think he's changed his style to suit the Premier League better. But I don't like I don't know about you. I don't like the post revisionism that we get on how he was no. unfairly treated at Arsenal and how. He really deserved better, and Arsenal fans are so ungrateful for him, and yada yada yada. Um, anyway, we we watched us draw to Watford, where they had twenty two shots. Um, like that game is fundamentally scarred in my in my memory. Like, that's canon of being an Arsenal fan now, mm. and it's just like we were never this Villa side, and we had arguably better players than that Villa side do. So yeah, I I, I don't know. I just. I hate that that comparison, and I see a fair bit now. It's like, oh, you know, Emery could have worked at Arsenal. You know, Emery was unfortunate. Yada yada. We took the piss. Blah blah blah. Um, I don't know. Sorry, I, I, it feels like we've had a good podcast of getting things off our chest, and that was another one that I just wanted to get off my chest. <laughs> that is, I mean, he, he suits that team, doesn't he? That's the that's the the thing of it is, is that he suits, he suits an underdog. the underdog. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That he suits teams that aren't expected to do particularly well. And he's very, very good at making them do well. And obviously he's, he's also been backed a lot. Like some of those signings like DRB coming in is like, he's had superb transfer windows. He's been backed by, by his owners. And the fact that Aston Villa are um, punching above their weight, it suits him because he can, he doesn't need necessarily a philosophy. Like I'm sure, I'm sure there's stuff that he employs game by game for Villa. I'm sure if I spoke to a Villa fan about it, they'd say, oh, you know, he quite likes to do this, blah, 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 blah. Obviously, he's brought amazing out Bolly Watkins. He's historically really, really good at getting goals out of strikers. And he did that with Aubameyang as well. And to a certain extent, Lacazette. Um, But I think there's a reason why he didn't do as well as expected at PSG. And there's a reason he didn't do as well as expected at Arsenal. And that's because we need to 
like these clubs need to be clubs that are expected to win games. And the expectation of that means that you have to be dominant. It means you can't be the underdog. You have to be the protagonist. And I think he's just so, he's so used to not being the protagonist. He's, he's, Every every game he plays is against the protagonist. He's like he's like the pluggy antagonist that's gonna that's gonna ruin the protagonist's day. That's that's how he wants to play his football, and it's it's taken him really really far. He's obviously a great manager, but yeah, and no, I agree with you. I think that um he started off decently well, Nelson Promise, and then kind of the last third of the first season was terrible, <laughs> pretty much, and then the first uh, kind of quarter of the second season was even more terrible, and and as someone that has never really called for a manager's heads. And even when Wenger was there, I didn't really call for Wenger's heads. The fact that it was getting to a point where I was like, when are we going to sack this bloke, man? <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't deal with it. But, you know, good for him. I'm glad he's doing well. Now we can, luckily, because we're doing well, we can uh, we can look at our own uh, manager of uh, Arteta, who's doing really, really well. And, um, uh, and the first thing, really, I want to talk to you as we're kind of wrapping up uh, like this podcast now, looking at this Burnley game and maybe kind of tying that into the severe game that we just watched, like in terms of lineup, do you expect to see any changes other than maybe Tommy Asu coming up with Zinchenko from injury reasons? Um, well, it depends on Anketia and Odegaard's fitness. Um, I think Jorginho might be kept in there just because of, I, I think he's quite a good controller and Burnley aren't the most physical side in the Premier League. I think in physical games, I worry about him. But against Burnley, I think he'd be a really good controller. Uh, it's about whether he can play three games in seven days at 32 years old, I guess, is the big issue. Um, well, I saw a picture of his injury record earlier, actually. He's apparently he's I excellent, mean, isn't it? Yeah, I did see someone reply to it saying, um, uh, if, you don't, if you never speed, you're never going to get a ticket. And I thought that was quite funny. But I still think it's quite <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yeah, no, he is... I think he's so perfectly suited to the Champions League like because it's a bit slower and it's not got all of the pace and power that the Premier League has. Um, it just it feels like he's perfect. And as, literally, as we're wrapping this up, I've just seen a tweet come up saying that Thomas Partey is supposed to uh, expected to be out until the end of 2023 due to injury. No! Um, because he's undergone a specialist procedure. for and This is from Fabrizio, so... Um, they literally just flash up on my phone, but um, I think that's quite fitting that maybe Jorginho is going to play a lot more than we expected him to when we signed him twelve months ago, and I think he's I think he's doing quite well. I would keep him in the side. I think Rice in that left eight is doing well, um, and with Smith Rowe out, I feel like Havertz, Vieira, and Trossard feels a bit overkill. Mm-hmm. Like it's the two midfield positions and the striker. I would probably keep. Uh, Havertz and Trossard in and bring Vieira in off the bench but I wouldn't be opposed to seeing Vieira start uh, for either of them to be honest and then you know what I mean the the rest of the front three picks itself and when fit the defence picks itself as well so I don't I don't I don't expect major changes we might see changes for fitness changes for injury or whatever that we can't predict but in an ideal world I think that's the team that Arteta would go with yeah I, I agree with that to be fair and I think that like Rice and, and Jorginho, I think they've got the makings of quite a good partnership in them, um, as long as we can kind of balance out the forward line in front of them, um, in the sense that obviously Declan Rice just eats up ground and he's almost like a like a marathon runner and, and Jorginho is like that brain. I think he kind of, if you put them together, I generally think that you've got almost like the best uh, defence midfielder the world's probably ever seen. Um, they, they cover each other's weaknesses really, really, really nicely. Um, so just before we leave it, um, we'll do predictions and first goal scores. We forgot to do that for the Newcastle game, which, I mean, none of us would have it right anyway. But um, uh, do you have uh, your prediction and first goal scorer, Ben? Yeah, I'm going to go 3 0 Arsenal. Hope for a clean sheet. Uh, I don't, I don't want to see any David Raya sort of antics going on. I'd love a game where he's not really tested and he doesn't make any mistakes. And, you know. We're not there. We don't have a reason to sort of yell for Ramsdale, which clearly isn't going to happen uh, after the game. So, 3 0 Arsenal and first goal scorer is going to be um, Leandro Trossard. Leandro Trossard, yeah. I mean, you're getting another one that. Um, uh, I, I, he looks good at striker, I think. I think he really suits as a striker. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to go 4 0. I'm really going to put the onus on us to go into the. 
Yeah, yeah. I've, I think it's got to be a whitewash. Honestly, I think that we have to stamp them into the ground. This has to be a game that we set our authority on us. And, um, and even though we played midweek, I'd still back us to do that. And I think that, yeah, 4-0. And I'm going to say first goal scorer is going to be... Uh, we'll go with, uh, with Martinelli. I'm going to go with Martinelli. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, I think he was an excellent... Uh, obviously, he was excellent midweek. Hopefully, he can just sort of carry that on. Um, yeah, into into Saturday's game, and we can only hope because obviously we've got another week or so. Was it, was it a week or two weeks? I'm not sure. We've another period of time without football after that game, so we're going to have to make do once again. But if you have listened this far, thank you very very much. Obviously, me and Ben kind of mentioned earlier we went on for a lot of tangents. We spoke about a lot of stuff. I know that we're technically talking about Newcastle game very very late, but I do think that you know the reaction to that has really kind of engulfed the week. So I think that especially the fact that, you know, there's still reaction, like the fact that Carragher was tweeting about it today, it just shows that um, this is still something that's, that is apparently a very, very big deal. And, uh, and me and Ben needed our therapy to get it off our chest. And, but luckily enough, we've had a great sphere game and we're going to go into the Burnley game. And hopefully one of me and Ben's predictions will be correct. So as I say, if you listened to this far, thank you very, very much. We'll be back after the Burnley game for, a, uh, for a, a review of that and we'll be back over the international break with more podcasts this has been the Bruise Runner FC podcast have a great night and up the Arsenal Erdegaard is joining in and he's seen Martinelli extraordinary set it for Saliba for Kyle Saka beaten out by the race and touched in by Jesus Kyle Saka oh,